Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. We're going to just do some notes on the Christmas story. I want to show you why, because as the story's been told over and over and over for 2,000 years, it starts to build up some barnacles on it, and then we, lots of conflation happens between the tellings, and so sometimes it's good to go back and look very closely at what's actually going on, and then say, what can we learn? What are some of the, what are the, some, some of the things that we recognize about the birth of Jesus that God is telling us about in his, in the world. So, all right, so this picture, what you're looking at right here is Bethlehem. Now, it doesn't, it's far away. So right there on the horizon is the city of Bethlehem. It sits about 22 to 2300, maybe 2500 feet at its most. Think Julian. It's, it's very close to Jerusalem, up on a ridgeline, that drops down into a rift valley, just like Julian drops off down to Borrega Springs. And just like Julian, lots of rainfall right on that ridgeline that makes it very fertile. So this is great farm country. Ruth is in Boaz's field at Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread, which of course, the bread of the world was born in the house of bread. That makes sense because God's coordinated. So that's Bethlehem, and what we want to do is just some notes on the Christmas story. Look at some of the details. The main source of, or reference for this, is Ken Bailey. Kenneth Bailey, I've mentioned him a number of times. This book in particular, called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Ken Bailey passed away in 2016, but he spent the majority of his life living in the East, all over Egypt. Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Cyprus, and they read the Bible differently because they're reading it in the same culture in many ways as the biblical culture. So if you see this book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, you'll see he talks about the Christmas story. So some of this is from that book. And what happens is as we retell the story, because there's so little detail put in the Bible, we often add things in. If we think about our own Christmas story, the Christmas story, as we tell it, let's say in a nativity play or some, a church presentation, is often a conflation, right? We have Luke gives us an account. We're going to look at Luke's account today. Matthew gives us an account, which is different. And so we have to set those next to each other and make sure that we don't conflate the two. And then, and this is noted by many scholars, what happens is there's a writing that came about somewhere around 200 AD, much later. And the writing is called the Infancy Gospel of James. And it's claiming to be written by the brother of Jesus, James, but it's not really. It's, it's a later creation. And, and ancient writings did this all the time. They would write and then they would claim it in the name of somebody famous trying to get your book sold by claiming somebody famous. And they didn't really have a problem with that, but today we look back and say, well, that's not really by James. So this infancy gospel of James has some details in it that 
you'll see get get pulled in to our telling of the story. And so that's what I want to show you a couple of those details today. Let me show you one website, and this is just to give you a reference point. There's a website called Early Christian Writings, and a gentleman by the name of Peter Kirby runs this website. It's If you ever want to read some of these ancient documents, the writings, this is a great place. He has them all collected together. It's remarkable how much is out there. So, for instance, if we look on this page right where that square is, if I increase it here, you can see right there is the infancy gospel of James. So that's what we're going to talk from. And you'll see as soon as these details pop up, you'll see why, how they get integrated into our story. Now, the infancy gospel of James is trying to retell the story of the birth of Jesus, but he does it very dramatically. He adds a lot of information that's not given to us in the Bible. So, for instance, and I believe this is on your sheet somewhere, the handout, in the infancy gospel, he describes the journey or even the destination of where they're going, Bethlehem, as a desert. Now, I just showed you, it's up on a ridgeline. They get plenty of, they get a lot of rain. It's a, it's a very fertile area. And Mary and Joseph may have traveled down the Rift Valley up to Jericho and then up the hill. But actually, the Bible doesn't tell us. So in the Bible, there's no mention of the journey. It simply says they were in Nazareth and they went to Bethlehem. But there's no mention of a, of a journey they took. And so what, you know, in our collective consciousness, we will add in details of a journey. And the journey is always going to be this harrowing journey because that's how stories are told. So let me show you one example of how this gets woven into our modern storytelling. Uh, in 2006, there was a movie called The Nativity Story. And notice what Joseph is doing with Mary. So he's leading her and it's a windswept, like they're in a sandstorm in a desert. Because so often the story's told, we pull desert in. Well, desert doesn't come from our Bible. Desert comes from that infancy gospel. So you'll notice too, Mary's on a donkey. And we'll talk about that next. But if you watch this movie, the journey, there's all kinds of stuff going on with the journey. I mean, they want to make it as dramatic as possible because that's how we love to tell stories. Very dramatic. The Bible, though, as I mentioned, they don't, they don't talk about journey. The second one, and this is where we get the idea of Mary riding a donkey. That comes from the infancy gospel, not from the Bible. There's no mention of donkey in the Bible. And we place Mary on a donkey, but the Bible doesn't tell us she was on a donkey. So I'll give you another picture here. of the, That's the nativity story. You can see they're in a desert-type landscape, very dramatic. Mary's on top of a donkey. Bonnie did mention, she noted, if you remember about a year ago, we did, um, during the triumphal entry, we talked about symbolism of a donkey, and that in the ancient Near East, donkeys would carry a king, so that actually fits the story, and donkeys are a way of showing a spiritual journey, because donkey, the word for donkey and the word for material in Hebrew is the same, it's the same word, basically. So a donkey represents the material world, and anyone riding on a donkey is on a spiritual journey. So if Mary's sitting on a donkey, it's a way to express that she's on a spiritual journey, and we wouldn't disagree with that. But again, it's just 
you just want to say what's there in the Bible and what's not. So again, no mention of donkey in the Bible. And then in the infancy gospel of James, he says, as they're riding on the donkey, Mary says, uh, I'm about to give birth. The child is, is, is coming. And so they, they put her in a cave to give birth, and then Joseph leaves. And Well, there's no, there's no mention in, in either Luke or Matthew that, the, that her pre, the birth was imminent. We make it imminent. We make them arrive at Bethlehem at exactly the moment that she needs to give birth, and then they're frantically looking for a place to stay. But I'll show you in a minute, that's not exactly what the Bible says, and it changes the story if we, if we read it that way. So Luke tells us in the Bible that they're already in Bethlehem. When the time came for Mary to give birth, they were already situated in Bethlehem. And so, again, the drama of the story gets taken away when we take out the piece about the, the imminent birth that's about to happen. So let me sh- let's go in our Bible. So if you have your Bible available, turn to Luke, and I'm going to read verse 4. Or it's Luke 2. That's the, the narrative we're in. Luke 2, verse 4 and verse 6. And the only verse I'm leaving out, 5, of course, is the part that says Mary was with them. So it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee, excuse me, to Judea. Notice, anytime you're anywhere in Israel heading towards Jerusalem, the direction is up, because that's where God lives. If you're moving away from Jerusalem, it's down. So he comes from Nazareth to Galilee, or Nazareth to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. It's important to note here that there's two groups of people in Israel at the first century who kept track of their lineage. The first group is the priests, so anybody who's born of Aaron or the tribe of Levi. So the Levites and the priests were very particular about keeping their lineage because it proved that you were from the priesthood. The second group is line of David. So they kept meticulous notes that they were from the line of David. And we, when we talked about the city of Nazareth, Netzeret, which means Shootville or branch town, they claimed to be from the, the branch. They were the shoot out of the stump of Jesse. They were going to be the people who the Messiah was going to come from. And oh, by the way, the Messiah did come from them. So that's a little bit strange. But they named their town Branch Town. They're Branch Davidians, in a sense. Okay, now go to verse 6. So it says, Joseph went, to Naz- went from Nazareth to Judea. Then verse 6 just says this, while they were there. Now, it doesn't give us how long they were there. It just says, while they were there. So while they're there, the time came for the baby to be born. So we don't really know exactly how long they were there. And what, what Kenneth Bailey argues is so much of the story that, that we don't read as Westerners is based on the honor-shame culture of the East and the hospitality of the East, and how important it is that if a pregnant woman showed up into a village, regardless of how she got pregnant, if that pregnant woman shows up in a village, the village will do whatever they can. It's like the most important thing. So A, hospitality is important. B, you shame the city 
or you shame the village. So his argument is, Joseph probably showed up at Bethlehem. He would be able to say, here's whose family I'm from. They would understand that. And they would go into action and they would provide a place. He would have somebody from a distant, a distant relative or something. So, you know, we often make, the, make it more dramatic, I think, than, than Luke tells the story. But part of that comes from a cultural piece that we don't necessarily have in the West. And that's hospitality of the East and the family lineage. Now, the person that we make into the villain in this whole story, the, the villain is the innkeeper. Joseph and Mary show up in Bethlehem. They go to the inn, right? So there's the verse that almost all your Bibles translate, there was no room at the inn. And so you say, ah, there's this innkeeper who, you know, puts up, puts up his hand and says no to the mother of God, and how dare you do that? And there's all this rejection. And we have a problem with that interpretation of the word inn. Is it an inn, as we think, you know, like Motel 6? Or does it simply mean a guest room? And scholars, now I'll show you how one of the Bible translations made a change, would say, no, there's no, there's no innkeeper mentioned. He kind of gets lambasted every year as this guy who rejects Jesus. But the reality is, we don't see that in the, in the text. So let me show you how this plays out. And if you look down at Luke 2.7, so this is going to be the critical verse. Uh, now, most of your Bibles... Unless you're reading the 2011 version of the NIV, and I think there are some other ones that made this change, most of your Bibles say there was no room in the inn. I think partly even, it may have been because of Kenneth Bailey's that the NIV made a change. So let me at least show you, if you don't have the NIV, you'll have to trust what I'm, what I'm putting on the screen, but the NIV has the 1984 version. And I'm going to put the 1984 version of Luke 2.7 on the screen. And then I'll show you what they did in 2011 when they updated. So the NIV says this, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths. Well, that would be swaddling cloths and placed him in a manger. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then they said, because there was no room for them in the inn, the Greek word there, kataluma. Now, that's the traditional way of, of translating that verse. It's the way the majority of Bibles had it translated in English, and it leads you to believe that it's an inn, like a, like a motel. But the problem is, that's not what the Greek word means. So let's go, I'm going to show you the 2011 version. In 2011, the NIV did a massive update, and they changed a number of things in the text. It's actually, I'm, um, it's a very encouraging thing to see how, as they learn, they update their Bible, because that's tough for Bible publishers to do. So in 2011, the verse says this, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, essentially, and placed him in a manger because, and then look at this last sentence, there was no guest room available for them. So that's a big, that's a big shift. So the big shift is the inn up here, which we perceive to be a hotel, and guest room down here, which is actually fits the Middle Eastern culture. So th the guest room part is actually is more accurate. And well, let me, 
I'll show you in a diagram, and I put this diagram on your sheet. This basically comes from Kenneth Bailey's book. In the Middle East, the peasant people, the people that work the land, they live in the house with their animals. And here in the West, you know, even we we just don't do that. Maybe at some point in the early part of our country we did, but you know, there's a barn in the backyard, there's a stable separated from the house, but not in the Middle East. And even today, I can tell you when we were flying over little villages in Baghdad, I could look down and see a house and then the water buffalo sitting, you know, basically inside the house with the people. So the house would have basically a family living space. As Ken Bailey describes, there'd be a slope downward, which just helps for cleaning. And they would often build it on using the natural rock formations so that you could then have an animal stable. So connected to the family living space would be an animal stable. And the manger that we're talking about, so the manger that Jesus was placed in, I'll show you a picture of one. It's a rock trough. So it's carved into the rock. It's a trough for the animals to feed. Now, many homes would have either connected to the outside living space or on the roof, they would have a guest room. And that's what it appears that they're talking about. There's no guest room available, meaning A, it was full, or B, the house was so small they didn't even have a guest room. So it appears that they're, they're in a house, part of the family, they're inside the house, there's no room for them, meaning there's no room to separate where to have the birth, and so they're right next to where the animals are. And then it says they laid the baby in the manger, and this is what a manger looks like. So a manger, you bring the animals to the manger, not the manger to the animals. So it's carved into rock, it doesn't move, and each house would have a, have a manger that the animals would, it's a feeding trough. It all fits into the story. We miss it if we don't place if we don't place it into a Middle Eastern type house. All right, so that's a picture of a manger. So if we go back to our next slide. So you've got these animal stables, correct? That's probably where they would have placed Jesus. And then what is most likely the the case is instead of having an actual guest room, because you would assume if you have a pregnant woman, you would put her in the guest room is that the house is small enough that there is no guest room. And that would really place him being born at the lowest level of society. And it's, what's the message that we get out of this? The message is he was born in the, in the, 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 lowest, of, the lowest rung of society. They didn't even have a bed for him. They placed him in a manger. And we're going to compare that to how the world sees a king being born. That's one of the key pieces to this, that we need to do a comparison to what the world thinks about a king versus how God views someone who will become king. So it's more likely something like this, very, very small house, not even a guest room, but they're in a house and they're being taken care of. Let me give you a picture of, this is an artist's rendering of a first century house, and the main point I want to show you is there's animals in the house. This is very normal for, uh, for the animals to be part of the family, a cow, a donkey, well, maybe not a donkey, a cow, goats, sheep. They're, they bring warmth into the house on a cold night because it does get cold in Bethlehem. Anyways, 
this is Ken Bailey's whole argument is we have to make sure we put the picture back into first century. And when the shepherds arrive, there's no complaint by the shepherds that someone's not being uh, helped. They're, they're praising everything about the whole situation. And so Ken Bailey would argue, if there were really no hospitality, those shepherds would be really upset. And they would get their own women from their community to take care of this child and a brand new baby. So it, it helps us if we can put it back into that first century context. Uh, let me show you just, this is on your sheet, and I think it's, I don't have my sheets in front of me, but I want to show you, is it possible that we're just, that there's a mistranslation, right? With Did Luke possibly take the Greek word kataluma and actually mean in like a Motel 6, someplace that travelers stay? And the answer is no, because he does use it in his gospel. So let me show you how this works. So we have the birth narrative. That's what we're talking about now. And this Greek word, kataluma, which many Bibles translate as in, but really it should be a guest room, or there was no room in the room available for them. So that's kataluma. That word is used a second time in Luke's gospel. So when Jesus is preparing the Last Supper, he says to his disciples, go into the city, find a guy carrying water, tell him the master needs the room or the master needs the guest room. It's the same Greek word, kataluma, and it's translated in that sense, guest room. So we do have evidence of that word being translated as guest room. The last one comes from a story that you guys all know, the Good Samaritan. In the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan takes the man that was beat up and takes him to an inn and says, here, I'm going to drop him off, and if there's any more expenses, I'll bring, you, I'll bring you money later. And in that case, totally different word, pandochion. And the pan is everybody, or everything. It basically means everyone welcome. That's an inn. That's a in traveling type inn. We do have evidence within Luke. Luke knows the difference. If he wanted to express in as a traveling lodge, he would have used a different Greek word because he does use the different Greek word. And that's important to note that it's not just a, he didn't quite have a, the right word. Nope, he has the words and he very specifically uses Cataluma to mention he's in a house, there's just no room, and that's why the baby ends up in a manger, because that's the question. How does the baby end up in a manger? That's what you'd want to know. Well, there was no room in the room. So, okay, that's the first step. Now, how do we juxtapose that? Because this is what we want to do. What are we juxtaposing? This very normal birth that happened at the lowest rung of the village, because they're probably the poorest people in the village. What are we juxtaposing that with? Well. That picture of Bethlehem that you see on your screen off in the distance, I'm standing on a very tall, well, not very tall, but a tall mountain relative to the region. It looks like this. And that is an engineering feat of marvel. That is called the Herodium. And this sits about three and a half miles from the center of Bethlehem. This, at, in the first century, when Jesus was born, this was one of Herod the Great's palaces. And what's remarkable about this is Herod the Great actually moved an entire mountain 
there were two hills. He pulled one hill over, stuck them together, and made a giant cone that sticks up in the air. Three miles from Bethlehem. This is a, it was one of the largest, if not the largest, palace fortresses in the world at the time. It's an engineering feat. So you see that, that flat cone on the top. If you go to that flat cone and you look down inside, his whole palace is sunk into like a cylinder down into that cone. Let me go back. So from the top of that cone is where I, I'm taking the picture of Bethlehem looking backwards. You go in, you look inside of it and it's amazing. I mean, there's all kinds of tunnels and, and there's a foundry in there. And there's, of course, kitchens and banquet halls. And this is a huge palace. It's massive. And so where, where does the world expect the future king to be born? Well, three miles away is the largest palace fortress in the world. That'd be a good spot to declare to the world that you're king. But that's not how God works. And God puts him right under the nose of Herod in a little village, in a little house. Not, they don't even have enough room for the, for the birth to happen. So that's part of the juxtaposition. How does the world see a king being born? Versus how does God see the king being born? Let me show you how prominent this is, because obviously from Bethlehem, this thing's going to dominate the skyline. He changed the whole landscape. He moved two mountains. So let me show you a picture. I took this picture from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is up in Jerusalem, so you're looking at about 10 miles away south, and you look right where that arrow's pointing. It looks like a volcano sticking up. That's the Herodian. Even from Jerusalem, you can see Herod's palace. It's remarkable. If, if I go closer, I zoomed in, that's the Herodian. This thing dominates the landscape. And as I said, it's an engineering feat that they were able to do that. You know, when Jesus says something about moving a mountain, they actually have context for someone that moved a mountain, and that's called Herod, which is remarkable. So this is what I think, and many scholars look at, when you read the Christmas story, part of the Christmas story is you're comparing it to what the world says, right? So if we, if we wanted to summarize this, you have man's kingdom. That's represented by Herod the Great, King Herod. Well, is he the king? Well, not in God's kingdom, right? So now King Jesus is born. And his birth tells you that he's born for the whole world. He's not born for the elite. He's not born for the powerful. He's born for the whole world. So Herod, of course, he has an elite family. He's going to serve the elite. The elite are going to, it generally, what happens? Oppress those, the, the rest of the world. And when God says, no, 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 watch, I'm going to send my king in to be born, it's all humanity. So you, you get that picture because the birth is set at the lowest rung, the smallest house, the least privileged people in Bethlehem, and you compare that then to this only three and a half miles away, this amazing palace fortress that was built by an actual king, and say, now you have to decide, people, which one is actually king. What I'm going to do next time is we're going to extract this even further, because the way Luke tells the story, we have another king that we're going to compare this to, 
that would be Caesar Augustus, but we'll, we'll look at that next week because there's some comparisons with the way they talk about Caesar and the way Luke writes about Jesus. So anyways, hopefully that came through because it's really important, A, that we kind of wash off the barnacles of our storytelling to say what was actually going on. How do we look at this more um, accurately through a Middle Eastern view rather than our Western conceptions of what's happening? And then compare that with what is just right outside of, of Bethlehem, three miles away, this unbelievable palace fortress. Now, many of you have been to Bethlehem, so I thought about showing you some pictures from Bethlehem, but they all just look like a normal city. Like, you don't get anything that looks first century or anything like that. So here is my favorite—well, it wasn't my favorite thing. We went, to, we, we went to all the nativity, the churches and stuff, but this is really funny. If you're walking from where they park the buses towards the Church of the Nativity, you walk past this store. This is a store that's in downtown uh, Bethlehem, and it's called Stars and Bucks. And just to avoid any kind of copyright issues or copyright infringements, they didn't call it Starbucks. They called it Stars and Bucks. So it's the Stars and Bucks Cafe, and their logo is even green, black, and white. And... Uh, so they, have a, they know exactly who they're marketing to. Let's put it that way. All the Westerners who are going to show up to, at Christmas time when it's freezing cold in Bethlehem, they're, uh, they're marketing their hot coffee to those Westerners. Stars and bucks. So that's Christmas Story Part 1. Like I said, next week we're going to look at a whole nother slice of that pie, another king, and try to pull something else out by the way Luke writes his Christmas narrative. Okay, so that's just some notes on Christmas. Let me stop the share. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.